go. Good morning. Great to see everybody. Hopefully everybody's had a great week. Are you surviving this heat wave? Man, this is great. How many of you, you actually like the heat? Anybody? Oh, there's a few of us. I like the heat. I don't mind it at all. It, I told Jane, it's nostalgic for me. It reminds me of growing up in the Central Valley. I was like, hey, this is normal. I was out at about 4 a.m. this morning just uh, uh, doing my normal routine in the morning. And man, it was hot even this morning. I looked at my phone. It said it was 75. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. This heat still woke me up. It was still one of those heats that just didn't seem to ever really cool off. But thankfully, the air conditioning is working in here this morning. And then, like we said, we've got some to cool off after the service. My wife, she came to me. She said, babe, I love you. And she said, you know, you're a great speaker and everything. But she said, you know, can you just do something for me today? And I was like, yeah, what's that, babe? Anything. She's like, be short. Be really short. It's hot. I was like, oh, I see. Who paid you? Who paid you? So I was like, she's not in this service. So I'll be short for this service, but the service she's in, she's getting it. I only have three points for you. I'm going to give like 10 for her, okay? So, um, but uh, we're, we're looking at kicking off a new series, and we're going to be in the book of First John, and we're going to look at this short little book. And we ended on singing that last worship song, A Good, Good Father. First John is just that. It really is the father heart of God and our interaction with him. Now, when we talk about a father, there can be a lot of different things when it comes to that, but we're really talking about an awakening. John is writing to a church, but yet it's not clear as to what church he's writing to, but he's writing to a group of people who are believers, who are already Christians, as you'll see evidence in this little short book. If you're familiar with this passage, you'll see that there's evidences that this writer is writing to them, but he's calling them back to some things. He's calling them to an awakening. And I don't know about you, but it's one of those things when it comes to an awakening, sometimes we don't even realize that we're actually asleep. Now, throughout our nation's history, there have been things that we've labeled as a great awakening. And as early as the 1700s, 1760s, there was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, one sermon. It was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it sparked a revival in New England and swept our country. Many people believe it prepared our country for the Revolutionary War. And uh, so that message really sparked what we would call a revival or an awakening. And it was called the Great Awakening. Later on in the 1800s, we experienced once again, because of a man by the name of Charles Finney, our country experienced what was called the Second Great Awakening. And this awakening was a calling our country's conscience back towards the things of God, calling people back to live for him. Now, as you study great awakenings throughout history, you can trace that this is not a new phenomenon. This is not something that just happened in the Bible. This is things that have happened across Europe. It's happened in our country. And I would say we're sore lacking for another one in this time and in our day and age. In countries like Europe or Wales, they would say after a great revival or a great awakening where people are called back to God or people being awakened to this God-present mindset. In Ephesians chapter number 1, verse number 18, it says that the eyes of your understanding being opened. That it's like this light bulb moment. It's like all of a sudden you're awakening to this new profound reality of who God is and who you are in relationship to God. And so in countries like Wales where they would see these great sweeping revivals, crime would drop so dramatically that the police officers had nothing to do. Isn't that incredible? The jails were empty. 
There was no crime because of a great revival. In our own country, we've seen great moves of God. And we sometimes think, well, that's because it's always started by a pastor. No, not so. In the 1920s in uh, New York, one man on his lunch hour decided to simply pray during his lunch hour. That small little prayer group grew and it grew and it grew and it touched the lives of an evangelist by the last name of Ham. Ham was influential in what we would call old school tent revivals. Now, we grew up in California, that's not a normal thing, but if you're from the south, what they would do was many churches, they would have an old-fashioned tent revival and so they would put up a big, almost like a circus tent and people would gather every night of the week for weeks on end to listen to preaching and to prayer and to sing and worship. God. And, and this evangelist by the name of Ham, he would travel and do this. There was a young boy named Billy who came and walked what was called the sawdust trail. They would line the floor of the dirt with sawdust. A man by the name of Billy, he walked down and he got saved. Many of you have heard of Billy because Billy's last name is Graham. Billy Graham really sparked the last great revivals that our country saw. He would fill up the Oakland Coliseum. He would fill up Coliseums in LA and across the world. And some of you, even your life has been dramatically impacted because of a man like Billy Graham. But yet it seems that our country now has kind of drifted from that. Do we still see small pockets of moves of God? Yes, we do. But we don't see it sweeping like we used to. And so really, in this series, my prayer is that we would experience a great awakening. And if you're confused by that, let me dive into it a little bit deeper. I've shared with you sometimes, uh, some time ago, how I remember that moment where I just kind of knew Jane was the girl that I wanted to marry. And I've shared this story with you and how it was on a Saturday morning and I'm walking and I'm just thinking and I'm literally in my mind, I'm praying, God, I don't know who to take to this dating activity and I want to take some girl and uh, I'm out there at six in the morning and all of a sudden I turn a corner and I kid you not, Jane is there running on the sidewalk. And I was like, wow, God answers prayer so quickly, so miraculously. This is awesome. It was like the angels blew trumpets, doves were flying behind her, and I just kind of knew. But here's the thing. This is not the first time I had seen Jane. You see, at the end of August, August 28th, around that time, every summer, we kind of joke about how that's the first time we actually really officially met. So two weeks prior, before that moment where I was like, man, I'm, I like that girl. I, wow. That, she's it. I'm, I want to spend the rest of my life with that girl. Two weeks prior, I had ran into her at our college cafeteria. You know what my reaction was? Nothing. Nothing. There wasn't angels, you know, there wasn't doves flying behind her. No bright light from heaven shone down and said, Micaiah, this is the one for you. Nothing happened. But two weeks later, there was like this light bulb moment. There was like this aha moment that this is the girl. This is the one. Now start chasing her, buddy. She's running. Go after her. And it eventually took me four and a half years to finally put a ring on her finger. You know, I chased her and chased her and finally caught up with her. But it took a little while before that aha moment. Before I was awakened to a new reality. To I discovered something. And maybe some of you, that's what happened for you. Maybe it was a relationship. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, this guy or this girl. Or maybe there was an opportunity that you weren't aware of. And all of a sudden you have this light bulb moment where you're like, wait a minute. I could do this or I could be that. And you pursue it and it happens. And it's just this awakening. Now God wants to do an awakening in our hearts. You know, in our home, it's kind of become something regular that happens. I'm a heavy sleeper. My wife is a very, very light sleeper. 
uh, last summer, not this past summer, or a couple summers ago, we had the horrible drought, and we had a little kiddie pool, inflatable kiddie pool in the backyard, and my wife said, there's a raccoon drinking out of our kiddie pool. I was like, how in the world do you hear a raccoon drinking? And how do you know it's a raccoon? Your superpowers are amazing. Sure enough, I opened the window. There was a raccoon drinking out of our, our, our little kiddie pool. So I grabbed the closest thing that I had, which was a little flip-flop. I threw it. I missed. It's dark. It's 2 a.m. I missed. We woke up the next morning. Apparently, I made the raccoon mad, even though I missed him, because he sliced up the pool. He just tore that thing up. There was water everywhere, and he just sliced up my kid's pool. So my wife's a very light sleeper. And so recently, we've been having this regular occurrence that my wife will give me the elbow and say, hey, honey, somebody's in our house. I'm thinking, oh, you got to be kidding me, man. Somebody's in the house. So I, I don't have a baseball bat or anything. I do have a nine iron, so I grab my nine iron. I'm not a very good golfer, so I don't care if I break my clubs. You know, and so I go out there. I'm going to defend our castle. I'm going to defend our home. So I walk and I creep, and all of a sudden, before I'm about to bring down this deathly blow to this person, this intruder's in my house, I turn, and there it is. It's Megan walking on my couch. You say, why is Megan walking on your couch? I said, Megan, why are you on the couch? And she's totally sleepwalking. She's in another world. And this has become something kind of normal. Like, we'll find her all over the place. She'll be walking on the couch. We, the other night, we saw her dancing in the living room, doing a little twirl and everything, or a little nightgown. It's just kind of a regular thing. She is sleepwalking, and she sleepwalks everywhere. And guess what she got it from me? There have been times where I've woken up outside of my own house growing up sleepwalking, and I don't know how I got there. I'm just outside. Now, that could be a really frightening experience. So far, our doors are locked. Megan stays inside. But sometimes, uh, sometimes Megan will be standing right in front of you at the bed, and it's kind of freaky, you know, kind of like, is my child demon-possessed? <laughs> You know, and she's just standing there, but she's asleep. Now she's moving, she's functioning, but she is asleep and she's sleepwalking. And some of us spiritually, we're sleepwalking. God is trying to awaken you to the reality of who he is and who he's called you to be, but we're just kind of sleepwalking through life. And God wants you to have this aha moment. I like the passage in Romans chapter 13. I'm doing a longer introduction because I really want to set the tone for our series in the next several weeks as we study the book. So just bear with me. In Romans chapter number 13, the verses 11 through 14, the writer, Paul, is saying to the people, he's saying, hey guys, it's now time to wake up. It's time to get out of our sleep, our spiritual slumber, and let's wake up to the things that are happening. There's a one uh, author, his name's Eugene Peterson, he wrote the message translation, and I love what he says about the same passage. He says, but make sure that you don't so get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of all your day-to-day obligations, that you lose track of the time and doze off, oblivious to God. The night is about over. Dawn is about to break. Be up and awake to what God is doing. Be up and awake to what God is doing, that God wants to work. But too often, we're just kind of asleep. And guess what? You can kind of tell when somebody is. You say, what do you mean? You're sitting there at the light and the guy in front of you, it turned green, and he's still there, and he's in la-la land. Now, if it's me, just leave me alone, okay? All right, I don't sleep much, you know, so just it, whatever. But, you know, it's one of those things where you're just like, what's going on? You sleepwalk, or you see a coworker at your job, and they're just kind of like, man, I'm punching out early on Thursday or Friday. I'm going to enjoy my weekend. They're just sleepwalking through their job. 
You've met that person that it just seems like they're just sleepwalking through their relationship. They're not investing. They're not giving. They're not participating. They're just doing. They're just there. Or there's that person that attends church. They go to church just because, hey, it's Sunday. I at least got to get to the house of God. So they just get up and they're just kind of sleepwalking through the motions. They're not really engaged. They're not really committed. They're not really connecting. And so they're missing out on what God has for them. And so what they need is this aha moment, this awakening of what God wants to do. And so we come to 1 John chapter number one, and that's exactly the premise of what he's writing. He's writing to people that know God, but they've kind of backed off. They've kind of spiritually fallen asleep. And I want to set the tone. Let's read the entire first chapter of 1 John. The words will be up on the screen as you follow along. Here's what the word of God says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. Now, in verse number one, who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's saying, we don't just know about Jesus. We don't just read about Jesus. He's saying, hey, we had a real encounter with Jesus. We've been impacted by it. You ever met somebody at a party or a social gathering and then you see them in the mall or at a store and you recognize their face but you've forgotten their name so you kind of like hey buddy hey girl hey friend how are you doing and you're trying to cover up because you don't remember their name because why they didn't leave that big of an impact on you like that's the reality that's really what happened you you're like i remember your face but i don't remember anything else and then it's worse if you like were at a wedding you guys sat and had an entire meal for two and a half hours and you still don't remember anything i'm not that great with names but i'm really good with details like just weird details weird details about people i'll just remember and years later it'll just come back up and i just i just remember in 2005 i was traveling our country doing youth revivals and i was in a, a little church in chambersburg pennsylvania just outside of gettysburg and i don't remember the name of the church but i remember one little five-year-old girl her name was ashlyn Ashlyn left a deep impact on me and I won't forget Ashlyn Ashlyn was the sweetest little girl who was fighting leukemia and so I won't forget her she left an impact John is saying hey this man Jesus this word of life he's impacted us he's not just something we read about he is the word of life verse number two he goes on to say the life was revealed. It means it, it means it was made clear and we have seen it and testified to it and announced to you the eternal life which was from the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you that which we have seen and heard that you also may have fellowship with us. What's he saying? This word fellowship. He's saying that you may have this connection like we have this connection. He goes on to say, verse number four, we are writing these things so that our joy, so that your joy may be complete. We say it here at Southridge, it's not what we want from you, it's what we want for you. You see, he's writing this letter. He's saying, hey, uh, even though we don't know who he's he's writing to, he's not saying, hey, I'm here to bash you guys down that you need to wake up spiritually. That's not what he's here to do. He's here to say, hey, I know that when you awake, when you have this aha moment with God, that your joy will be full. It's not what he wants from them. It's what he wants for them. What our church wants is not something from the community. It's something for them. We want people who are alone to experience that there is a friend that is real. We want people that are without hope to find that there is help and hope in Jesus. We want them to experience not just something that, that, that for a moment tastes good, but something that 
full and satisfying. That's what this writer, that's why he's writing that their joy may be full. Isn't that what we want this morning? A fullness of joy that we have this unshakable joy. He uses joy because they're obviously going through some difficult circumstances. He's saying it's not about happiness, it's about joy. Happiness is based on what happens to us. Joy happens even regardless of the bad situations. So he comes to verse number five and he says, this then is the message. He's saying, I'm going to get to the point now. Which we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. It's obvious in this passage that we need to walk in the light. But oftentimes we miss the fact that we're in the walk in the light of who God has called us to be not in light of what we're going through. Oftentimes, we walk in light of what we're going through. I'm going through a job loss. I'm going through the foreclosure of my home. I'm going through a messy relationship. That's kind of how we start to define ourselves. But God is saying, don't define yourselves by what you're going through. I want you to walk in the light of who you are. He's going he's to bring us back some things. But I want you to see in verse number six and verse number eight, he starts off kind of interesting. He says, if we say, what do you call somebody who says one thing and does another? Hypocrite, right? He's kind of calling them out in a passive-aggressive way, isn't he? He's saying, you guys say that you walk in the light, but you're not. He says, why? Your actions are giving you away. You say that you follow the word of life, the word of light, but yet you're not walking in it. He's saying that, guys, just because you say it doesn't mean it's actually happening. Just because we sing that God is a good, good father, you in your mind may be thinking, I've had a crappy week. He has not been a good, good father, but you're just saying it. Or maybe it's something where you're just going through the routines, and for you, it's something where you need to experience that he truly is great. He truly is good. He's trying to get them away from pretending. He's trying to get them away from acting two-faced. The word hypocrite comes from uh, the Greek actors. They would wear two masks. One was a mask that had a smiling face. The other had a a frowning face. It's where we get our little cliche, two-faced. And sometimes you've even said it. Oh, that person's two-faced. Stay away from them. You can't trust them. They're not honest. They're a hypocrite. They'll say one thing and do another. Oh, they'll tell you in front of you that they like you. And they'll tell you in front of you that you're the best. And as soon as they can, they'll put you on blast. They'll say something bad about you. And some of you, you've gone through this with family. You've gone through it with friends. You've gone through it with coworkers. You've gone through it with business partners. You're like, man, sometimes it's just so hard to know who to trust. And sometimes you've even gone through it with fellow Christians. Where you're saying, why are they so two-faced? What I'm calling us back to, and this is exactly what he's calling us back to, is not to be two-faced, but to be true-faced. To be who God really says we're supposed to be. Matter of fact, the message title is simply keeping it real. Would you touch your neighbor and say, keep it real. Keep it real. Keep it real. 
Isn't that what you want? You want somebody to be real with you. Sincere, to be genuine, to be authentic. You want to keep it real. We want things real. We don't want things that are fake. We want things that are real and genuine. We don't want to just have this this half-hearted, something that doesn't satisfy. We want something that is real and full and life-giving. And so that's why the apostle, the, the writer John, he starts with the fact that guess what? Jesus is real. That's where he starts. Didn't you see in the first four verses, he's laying down the fact that Jesus is real. He says, we've touched him. We've held him. We've seen him. We've heard from him. So when a Mormon comes up and says, hey, we believe the Bible, but we also have the Book of Mormon. We could say, no, 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 no. I know the truth. I don't need you to add anything to Jesus. I know who Jesus is. So when a Buddhist comes along and says, hey, do you know the way of enlightenment? You say, I don't need enlightenment. I've got Jesus. I don't need you to add anything to it. So when a Muslim comes and says, oh yeah, Jesus is one of the prophets. He's not the son of God. He's just one of the good prophets. And he said, you in the Bible, that's good, but you need to add the Quran. No, no, I don't need to add anything to it. I have Jesus. He's all that I need. He is the word of life. Do we need to add anything to it? No. See, John is saying, Jesus Jesus is real. Just like you and I are to be real, John is saying Jesus is real. He lays it out. But then he doesn't say Jesus is just real. He also goes on to say that Jesus is relevant to our lives. He's practical. He's something that you can use on a day-to-day basis. That Jesus, he's real, he's alive, he's working, he wants to work in your life, and in your co-worker's life, in your family's life, in your relationships. He wants to work in our church. He's real, but he's also relevant. It's not something that we just think, well, 2,000 years ago. No, no, this message is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. As we look at our culture, as we look at the world around us, we need to see a great awakening. We want to see people come back to God. God. We want to see people that are struggling and sin sick find hope and redemption and life in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we want. But then also, I love it. He's not just real. It's not just relevant. He wants a relationship. Isn't that incredible? He says, we can walk in the light as he is in the light so that we might have fellowship with him. What is the word fellowship? It's the word connection. Next week, we start our life group where we're going to get in connection with other Christians. I tell you what, I like going to CrossFit gym. I'm no stranger when it comes to CrossFit. Why do I like it? Because it's a group and we all suffer together. We're all going through the same workout. No matter how good you are or how bad you are, we're all hurting and sweating and aching together. And misery loves company. And so if I'm suffering, I want about a dozen other people to suffer with me so I can make fun of you. So you and we can have this common bond. That's just, it just helps me. And so that's why I like being in groups. Life groups the same way. Oh, you struggle with your kid this week. I struggle with my kid. You're struggling with your relationship. I'm struggling with my relationships. Hey, you're doing great. Okay, all right. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate the wins. Hey, you're hurting. Well, let me help and pray for you. Let's, let's get around this person. Let's encourage this person. This person's going through a difficulty. Well, we're right there. See, Jesus is saying, I'm real. I'm relevant. But then also I want a relationship. And so we can wake up to this reality. But we've got to understand first and foremost that I love the fact that before John says anything about what you need to do, he simply says, hey, if you say that you're walking in the light, you need to follow it up. But if you notice in chapter one, he doesn't tell us what activity. And I want to put this up on the board. And I want to start with activity because oftentimes we think, okay, if I'm going to have an awakening, there's an activity I need to do. But that's not where John starts. He says, guess what? Before there's an activity, you need to understand your identity. He says, let's start there. Because you'll never have the right activity without understanding your identity. Let me explain. Let me, let me unpack this just a little bit more. See, John wants to affirm who we are in Christ. 
He says, hey, you're a child of God. This entire book is based on that relationship with God. He's saying, hey, before we get to the right activity, you need to understand your identity of who you are. Then all of a sudden, that unpacks everything else. It's all about that identity. Today, it seems like we're struggling with this identity crisis. There's Christians who look like Christians, act like Christians on Sunday, but then Monday through Saturday, you couldn't tell any difference from anybody else that was a non-Christian. And so he's trying to get us back to the fact that, guess what? If you say that you walk in the light, then walk in the light. It's not how you walk. He's saying it's where you walk. Walk in the light. Walk in the light. Don't walk in the darkness. Don't walk in the shadows. You see, it's easy for us to want to be uh, in the shadows. But here's what I want you to write down. We'll be sabotaged by the shadows. I've seen this. The higher somebody goes or the bigger somebody gets, the bigger shadow they cast, right? You see a person gain influence, gain, gain uh, popularity. All of a sudden, they rise, but all of a sudden, they start casting a bigger and bigger shadow. I'm not the tallest guy, but if I go outside, all of a sudden, my shadow probably won't be as tall as somebody who's taller than me. My shadow won't be that, that big. But Austin, he'll come up to me, my little four-year-old son, he'll say, I want a big shadow like your shadow. And I'm like, well, you're half the size. Don't worry. God will help you grow. And all of a sudden, you'll have a bigger shadow. But here's what happens. Things grow in the shadows, don't they? We like to hide out in the dark places. So here John is saying, hey, let's not hide out in the dark places because we're going to be sabotaged by our shadows. So he's saying, hey, we got to leave these shadows. we got to leave this shadowy place. We've got to get back to who our true identity is. So many of us, though, we say, you know what, though? I started out with the dream. I was excited about church. I was excited about what God did. But then all of a sudden, I got derailed by my dysfunctions. You say, my life, I, I, I just mess it up. I just, I just, I'm just no good. I just have all these things in my life and I try to do the right things. I try to have the right activity. But guess what? I'm just a messed up person. Every relationship, I'm going to break it. Every job, I'm going to mess it up. Man, I'm just no good to anybody. And you start feeling that and you start interpreting that and you start wearing that. And all of a sudden, you get derailed by this dysfunction. We don't have a lot of time, but there's a character. His name is Moses. Moses is a Hebrew, but even though he was a Hebrew, he was brought up as an Egyptian. His identity is a Hebrew, but he's brought up as an Egyptian. And from a very early age, he knows that he's supposed to let the people go, help, help get the people out of Egypt. So at 40 years old, all of a sudden, he's going to finally, let's, let's get these people free. Let's take the Hebrews out of Egypt. Let's, let's set them free. So he decides that he's going he's to go and take matters in his own hands. And he kills an Egyptian taskmaster. The Bible says he buries him in the sand. But then this is known, and he ends up fleeing for his life. What happens was, all of a sudden, he thought, I'll do this deed, and it's gonna, my life is going to take off. And, and then he ends up, the next 40 years after that, being a shepherd on the backside of the desert, thinking that maybe it was all just nothing. And some of you, maybe you said, hey, Pastor, there was a time when I was on fire for God. There was a time when I was away. There was a time when I was passionate about things. But guess what? The fire waned, because guess what? I messed things up. And maybe you're thinking that there's too many broken pieces in my life. Or maybe it wasn't that you were just derailed by your dysfunction. Maybe it was your dreams turned into disappointments. Where you said, you know what? I was so excited about what God was going to do. I was, on, I was on fire about what God was going to do. And maybe you're like Mary and Martha who had a brother named Lazarus. And the story with Mary and Martha, they, they would open up their home to Jesus. And anytime Jesus was in town, Jesus would come over to their house. And Martha would cook and Mary would sit there at the feet of Jesus. And they loved Jesus. But then their brother Lazarus dies. And what happens? The Bible says that, John, that Mary and Martha get really upset with Jesus. Because they had some dreams. 
They had the expectation that I'm following Jesus and I love Jesus so nothing ever bad happens to people who love Jesus. And how many know that's a lie? That nothing bad ever happens to Jesus followers. Some of you just need to remember that because some of you feel like, what's wrong? I'm following Jesus and bad stuff is happening to me. What's going on? And some of you, you say, man, I, I had the right activity, but it started with derailed by my dysfunctions. My dreams turned into disappointment, but then I was disillusioned by my development. You say, what do you mean? I wasn't growing as fast as I wanted to grow. I saw everybody else, man, they were leading ministries and they were doing stuff and, and they were speaking and leading and helping and encouraging and, and serving and, and doing all these great things. And man, I wasn't growing as fast as the other person. And I got, I got upset. I got frustrated with my rate of growth. I wasn't growing. I wasn't developing. I've noticed that all three of my children grow at different ways, different stages. Cain is seven months old and he can't sit up. His siblings were sitting up by about five, six months old. But Cain's got a little bit more in the stomach reason than his siblings. And his head's a little bit bigger too. So when you sit him up, if you don't have a pillow, prop him up. All of a sudden, it's his leaning tower. You just kinda, and his eyes get big like he knows what's going to happen. He's like, somebody save me. I can't do anything about this. And he just goes over. And I laugh. Mom doesn't like that when I do that. But I think it's hilarious. Hours of entertainment, his little bobblehead and everything is so cute. Don't worry. I put rug. I put carpet. I'm a dad. I'm trying to toughen him up, you know. And uh, maybe that's you. Maybe you're saying, how come that person, they just seem like they got their marriage together. Man, how come it just seems like they are the greatest mother in the world? Like, man, their Pinterest board is amazing. Then I go in their house, and their house is a Pinterest board. And it makes me sick. I just want to throw up on all of it. You're just like, this is disgusting. You're just so perfect. Your name should be Martha Stewart, okay? And it's just unbelievable. And you work a full-time job. And you go to the gym. And you had six kids and still have a perfect body. I, I just, no, I can't handle you anymore. You know, it's just one of those things where you just get so frustrated by certain people and you look at yourself and you're like, I've been with this company for 15 years and I've been at the same spot. New guy comes in two months and guess where he's at? He's my new boss. What happened? We get upset by our development. And all of a sudden, we find our identity not in who the Bible says we are, Not who this passage is saying, hey, you are a child of God. Our identity is now in our activity. It's all about what I do. And what happens is we find our self-worth, not our net worth, we find our self-worth and our activity, not our identity. Our value is based on what we produce. We find our value in what we can do. I was recently, somebody talked to me and they were like, hey, don't find your identity in the church. And I was like, I learned that lesson the hard way when everything was taken away. All of a sudden, you got nothing left. You're like, my identity better be in Christ because that could be taken away in a moment. I've noticed that when I take my kids to school, all of a sudden I want to make sure they have their lunch. I want to make sure they have their, their breakfast and everything because the morning is all on me. We did a little chart and man, evenings, Jane's got it, afternoon, Jane's got it, but in the morning, it's all me. I get up early, get the kids ready, and man, one day they'll come back, they're like, you didn't pack us a juice box. I'm like, oh, I didn't get the juice box. I'm a failure as a dad. You didn't have your juice box. Really, what is it? It's a competition for me. It's, I want to make sure that my kids, they're perfect. They got everything, man. When it's, when it's time, we have a little note, and they just got everything perfect, and so that's, it's not so much a reflection on their need, it's a reflection on me. I want to be perceived as something that I'm not. So I vicariously live through my children. So I put this pressure on them that they shouldn't have to carry. But we put this pressure on them. And it's because we're so wrapped up, our identity's wrapped up in our activity. But here's the problem. God is saying in this passage, he's saying, hey, you're saying that you're doing the right things, but you're not. He's saying, let's get true-faced. We are modeled after our maker so we don't have to get wrapped up. And it's all about our activity. 
Because here, I would love for you to write this down. Things may not go like I'm expecting, but I'm obsessed with who I'm becoming. You see, you'll get discouraged if your identity is wrapped up in your activity. If you don't understand that, wait a minute, God is making me into something. I'm obsessed with who I'm becoming. What you see now is not what I will be. The other day, Jane asked me, he's like, anything you regret? And I'm like, oh yeah, there's a ton of things I regret. If I didn't have any regrets, guess what? I'm not growing. I'm not learning. There are things I regret. Do I obsess over them? No. Do I live in the past? No. But there are things that I say, hey, this is my identity. I want to grow in this. I want to see more of who God is. And I want to see him great. But then I want us to see you say, okay, don't have your identity in your activity. But then what do we do? How do we, how do we grow? How do we continue? And I love verse number nine. Here's what he says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all our sins. All unrighteousness. If we confess, here's the link, okay? When your conduct contradicts your character, confession opens connection. Let me say it again. When your conduct contradicts your character of who you are, confession is the only way that opens connection. You see, too often what happens is all of a sudden we found our identity in our activity. And so we flee into that. We run. Some of us, we throw ourselves into our job. We throw ourselves into our children. We throw ourselves into our hobbies. We throw ourselves into anything and we just lose ourselves to it. You know that person. They can't wait till Friday because, man, they're just going to get hammered all weekend. You know that person. that They just can't wait until they can go to the mall and just spend all their money. You know that person. They just can't stop popping pills to numb themselves, to self-medicate. You know that person that, man, it's all about what's happened on social media and everybody else and they care about everybody else's life and they know everybody about everybody else but they don't know who they are and how God's made them special and unique and instead we need to understand there's activity but then there's also access God wants you to have access to him you say how do we have access confession God says that's how you have access many of us are saying okay God I want to I want to know who you are I want this connection I don't fully understand the cloud and if you do help me out I just know it's out there somewhere. And I know that my sermon this morning, I put it up there and then I download it onto here. And I don't know how that happens. I don't get the cloud. I really don't. But the Bible talks about that Moses went up on a mountain and a cloud came down and he comes down with the Ten Commandments. You see, there's this cloud that we can access. But it's all about our connection. If I don't have an internet connection, guess what? I can't access the cloud. How's your connection this morning with God? You see, some of you are like, my connection's not real good. It's not real strong. It's a little bit weak. Can I ask you, maybe it's because something's blocking the connection. Maybe it's not because you don't know the password. It's so funny. It used to be when people come over to your house, they're like, oh, hey, how are you doing now? First thing is, what's your Wi-Fi password? Like, that's the new thing now. It's like, hey, we're friends. Give me your Wi-Fi password. Like, no, man, I'm not giving you my Wi-Fi password. That's like, we got to get a little bit closer. We got to know each other a little bit better than me give you, giving up my Wi-Fi password. But it's all about the connection. How is your connection this morning? Because it's not just activity, but it's also access. God wants you to have this, this access to him. But the access is blocked when we don't confess. He's saying, hey, guys, you've been living in this duplicit. And because of it, your life is stymied. You're not growing. You're not developing like I want. I want you to have this access. So how is your access this morning? How's the connection with God? See, confession opens connection, but pretending to be perfect will stop the progress. And this is a tough one. If you're OCD 
and man, you want everything on just perfect, guess what? You'll think your life is perfect. And you want everything to be perfect. The only problem is, when you pretend to be perfect, you're stopping any progress that God wants to do in your life. And maybe some of you, you're like, man, I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to grow, but I'm just so upset with these broken parts of my life. But I'm here to tell you this morning that it's because of the cracks. That's where the light can get in. You see, those broken problems in your life are actually God's portals where he can pour in his power to work through you. Because God says, hey, I'm not looking for the perfect person. I don't know if you're familiar with the word of God and familiar with the Bible. If you are, that's great. If you're not, there is character after character who messes up so bad, so bad. But yet God uses them in a great way. Now, it's not an excuse for us to just go and live however we want, but it is a reminder that, guess what? God can work even through our broken pieces, that God can take what is broken, what's dysfunctioning, and God can say, I can use it, I can redeem it. So there's his access. And thirdly, finally, we got to wrap things up. It's not up there on the screen, but I got to go to chapter two, verse number one. The Bible says, my little children. Once again, he's calling us back to our identity. We're God's children. He's saying, here's your identity. These things write I unto you that you sin not. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Why do you need an advocate? Because there is somebody out there who's accusing you. You've got an accuser. You see, we want you to have the right activity, but our identity can't be based on our activity. Our identity is based on who God calls us to be. But then we have to have the right access. But they need to understand that there's somebody who's accusing. And some of you, you'll come to church, or some of you, this is what keeps you out of church, is something called conviction and condemnation. And let me just break these down real quick in our last few moments. Some of you come to church or you don't come to church because you don't know when God is convicting you or when you're feeling condemnation. See, conviction is that work of the God where he's prodding you and saying, hey, there's something wrong, let's fix it. Let's fix this. Uh, my son went to school and all of a sudden the fire uh, drill was very important to him and he learned about the fire drill and the fire drill was really great. It was so important, he came home and he said, dad, we need to check the batteries in our smoke alarm. And he was not content until I took it off the wall and we put new batteries in the smoke alarm and he did a little test and pushed the button to make sure it, was, it would work. He wanted to make sure. But here's the little thing. That little button is an indicator that guess what? The batteries are good. But when the batteries start to die, guess what happens? It starts to beep, doesn't it? Isn't it also interesting that when we wake up, many of us use an alarm to wake us up? I think it's funny that they call it an alarm. Think about the word. Alarm. Something alarming is happening. No, it's just I got to get up and be at work. That's not really alarming. But that's what it takes to wake us up sometimes. Something alarming. Some of you have the little alarm and it's called little chimes and it's all meditative and happy. That puts me right back to sleep. Right back to sleep. It's like, oh, that's so beautiful. I'm out. I need the one that goes, just wakes me up, like yells at me. That's what I need. My wife hates it. Matter of fact, I use that one because not only does it the noise, my alarm is a special alarm. Mine, I get the physical and I get the audible. You say, what's the physical? My alarm's so great. It even comes with a heel kicking me in my back to wake me up. You say, what's that heel? It's my wife's. It's amazing. I get a two for one out of my alarm. It's great. But some of us, God's like, hey, I want to wake you up to the fact that I'm trying to do something. 
And sadly, for some of us, here's the devil, and he's accusing you. He's condemning you, and you're feeling condemned. But God says, no, I'm not into condemnation. I'm into this conviction to help you say, hey, it's an alarm, this warning. Let's take care of this. You see, God wants to get you back to that point where you're saying, God, I'm listening to you again. Where I'm awake to what you want. I'm awake to hear your voice. Not the voice of the accuser who stands before God night and day and accuses every child of God where Jesus is our advocate and he stands there and he says, no, you can't touch him. The blood has been poured on the mercy seat. My blood is still there. That is my child. He is declared righteous before me. So we have an enemy that is accusing us, but we stand in peace with God. Help me wrap up this message and stand.